Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus. It's a great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. What we've been doing since the past fall is looking at Genesis and Exodus as the story of us. And this class basically has three sections. We move sort of between the three all the time. The first section is something that I call prehistory. And prehistory is Genesis 1 through 11. And these are the stories that we all know from our Sunday school days. This would be Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This would be Noah's Ark. This would be Cain and Abel. This would be the Tower of Babel. And the case that I'm trying to make is that Genesis 1 through 11 is a poetic rendering of something that is historic and scientific. It's a move from one form of human existence as a hunter-gatherer, something natural and relational and family-oriented, into living in cities, the agrarian revolution. It is an important piece of scripture, but I also want to point out that the story of us as people of faith uh, is not found in Genesis 1 through 11. Rather, our story as a faith community begins with Genesis 12, which is the call of Abraham out under a night sky. Uh, God shows him all the stars above his head. All he ever wanted was a kid and some land to give it to. And God says, if you follow me, I'll make all your dreams come true. And these stars above your head will be the children, uh, the children of your family. And of course, through Jesus, uh, we are those stars. We are those children of Abraham. And that's, a, that's the fulfillment uh, of the New Testament. Uh, but that's the first section of the class, if you will. The second section of the class is the story of us, which begins with Abraham, and it continues uh, with the family uh, that, he, that he begins. So it begins with his child Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And by the time you get to the great-grandson Joseph, you realize that there is a fruit of this relationship, which brings us to the third section, which is that God will save them. Boy, do they need saving. Um, the, the story happens like this. God's people, Abraham's family, they end up in Egypt. And how they end up in Egypt is, is explained to us in Genesis, and we covered all this. It begins with Genesis chapter 37, and it goes for 15 chapters. And it's the story of Joseph, and it's, an, it's a national story. You know, a national story is a story that we all know uh, by heart, and so we all have national stories that... That, that identify us and bind us all as Americans, right? A national story might be the midnight ride of Paul Revere or George Washington could never tell a lie or uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I mean, all these national stories we learn as children and they make us all American and we all know them by heart. We can, we can finish the, the sentence, uh, if you will, uh, because, because they're ours. Well, Joseph is a national story for the Hebrews uh, and because it's the story of how they got into a mess and how God fixed it for them. And what's fascinating about the story of Joseph is that God, God is less up front in the story, but more in the behind the scenes, which teaches us and teaches God's people that sometimes God's activity is not quite as overt as we might seem. It's more like a closed door and an open window because through fits and starts, Joseph, beginning with Genesis 37, 
is sold to a caravan uh, as a presumed slave of Egypt. He's almost murdered, sold to a caravan, and yet through closed doors, open windows, interpreted dreams, uh, uh, hair breadth rescues, uh, Joseph becomes the number two man in the land of Egypt. Now, in time, there is a Pharaoh uh, who arises who does not know Joseph and does not know about the Hebrews, and the Hebrew people become enslaved for about 200 years. And it's it's going to take God to save them. Only God can save them. Their fortunes have changed. Exodus chapter five, if you want to go back to the podcast, reveals a superpower uh, that is brutally efficient with slave labor and pyramids and and bricks without straw uh, as a part of their punishment. And finally, at some point, the Hebrew people cry out. They cry out. I'm fascinated uh, by this description in Exodus chapter five of the, of the efficiency of the Egyptian nation. Uh, my friend Edan, an archeologist in Israel, likes to say that any biblical city needs three things. A biblical city needs three things. A biblical city needs defense, so it needs walls for defense. It needs to be near a good road for trade, but above all, it needs water. Egypt was the world's superpower because of the Nile River. They had an abundance of water. That water made possible the pyramids. The water made possible the Sphinx. The water made possible the broad uh, avenues. The water made possible the palaces. And so what you have here is a multi-tiered, aristocratic, ancient super city uh, that is described with with great detail uh, in the book of Exodus. And yet we also, it's revealed to us that just because it's efficient doesn't mean it's right. In fact, it's very, very wrong. I've been doing some reading lately about the difference between intelligence and emotional intelligence. Intelligence is just IQ. That's just your ability to figure stuff out and your ability to build, right? Your ability to do stuff and your ability to work a plan. Emotional intelligence is more important. Emotional intelligence is kindness and it's empathy and it's a a capacity to feel for someone else or feel what someone else is feeling. It's it's the ability uh, to to relate. Abraham Lincoln was famous for his emotional intelligence. He was a very, uh, not only an intuitive person and a brilliant person, but also a feeling person. And Doris Kearns Goodwin tells the story uh, of a time when, when Abraham Lincoln is in a debate very early in his career as a congressman in Illinois, and he bests his, his opponent to the point that they all started laughing at him, and the man began to cry. And Abraham Lincoln never got over it because he never wanted to make anyone cry again. Well, speaking of cries, what happens uh, after Exodus chapter 5 is, is, that, uh, is that God's people can't they can't take it anymore. They, they cry out. Uh, actually, uh, it goes back uh, to the third chapter of Exodus where God's people finally, finally cry to God. They actually cry to God, and it's the first time that it's mentioned that they cry. And this gets the ball rolling uh, with the call of Moses, who's living in exile, uh, raised in the court of Pharaoh, but now will be God's man to go back and face Pharaoh and, and demand that, that God wants his people back, that Pharaoh uh, let his people go. So I've caught you up to the story uh, and the drama of this, and this is what I want you to remember. Just because something is efficient doesn't mean it's right or that God wants it. God doesn't want mere intelligence. God wants emotional intelligence. God wants love. God wants justice, mercy, and compassion. That's the first thing. Second thing, God hears cries. God hears cries. When we cry out, God does something. So What's implied in this, in this national story here is that for 200 years, the, the Hebrews, just, they just dealt. They just adapted. They just sort of 
put one foot in front of the other and they just sort of gave up hope. But when they cried out to God, God set the wheels in motion for their deliverance. We participate in God's activity in our lives. This is the importance of prayer. This is the importance of, of tears. This is the importance of honesty. This is the importance of cries. Just remember, throughout scripture, which we hear it again and again, God hears it when we cry. Now, this little Egyptian picture that I've shown you is an Egyptian sarcophagus uh, from the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And it's important that I show you this one uh, because I'm gonna show you something that's just around the corner. Now, this is pretty funny. It looks like a folk art version of an Egyptian uh, sarcophagus. Uh, I don't mean for it to look that way. It looks, it looks like something perhaps a child had done or maybe even uh, a, a sarcophagus that you got for a bargain, right? Well, actually, that is a Philistine sarcophagus and it's very, very interesting and it makes a really good point. Uh, the Philistines, who were also a powerful army uh, in the Near East there uh, at the time of the Bible, they loved Egyptian stuff and they wanted to be Egyptian people. They wanted to do Egyptian things. And so they buried their dead in an Egyptian way because they were copying their powerful neighbors. If you can see in the picture there, there's an Egyptian sarcophagus behind the Philistine sarcophagus, which doesn't look near as good. Uh, but here's what I want you to know. God did not want his people to be like that. If there's a story that repeats itself in the Bible again and again and again and again is this. You're gonna be different, you're gonna be something else. Are you gonna be mine? Are you gonna walk out in faith and you're gonna be my family and you're gonna be a witness to the world? Are you gonna love and you serve? Are you gonna be like everything else, right? The same old cycle of misery, the same old pyramid of success, the same old grinding uh, day to day where might makes right. So the Philistines wanted to be the Egyptians. Hebrews? wanted to be as far from there as possible. We're also told in the story of Exodus that, that God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, a burning bush, something lonely, something simple, something natural. The Egyptian gods appear in the form of, of, of jackal-headed statues and pyramids, right, and elaborate hieroglyphics and lots of building, lots of paint, but God appears uh, to Moses in, in the form of something of humble and of fragile. I've had it said to me, and this makes perfect sense, that the reason why the Hebrew people are so reticent about describing the afterlife beyond sleeping with one's ancestors or being gathered to one's ancestors is because the Egyptians were so detailed about the afterlife, uh, burying, their, burying their kings with their chariots and with slaves and with animals and with food. No, the Hebrews wanted to be different from the land of Egypt, and so, uh, so they would always tell a story called the Passover, of how God saved them and took them away from all of that. And our communion words are Passover words. So this story is important for us. This morning, I wanna show you a few verses from Exodus that reveal uh, God's um, using an important concept uh, for Moses to learn. And we're just gonna flip the switch and we're gonna read it together. This is Exodus chapter seven, verses one through five. And, and here's, here's the concept at the end uh, in, in verse five. I'll read it. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet and you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his land but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt when Pharaoh does not listen to you. 
I will lay my hand upon Egypt and I will bring my people, the Israelites, company by company out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Now, we've all seen the movie. We sort of know what's going to happen here, and it's, and it's summarized here in Exodus chapter 7, 1 through 5. But here is the key point that God is making here as a part of their deliverance. It's this, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians will know. Know is a very important word in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I need to say something about this word know. It's called yada, yada. Those are my notes uh, that I made preparing for this lesson. Yada uh, is the word to know. Uh, but first of all, I want to remind you of something when you study uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, and that is it's written in a word-poor language. I love to talk about this stuff because it's, it's so important in biblical um, interpretation. There are only 4,000 Hebrew words, about 4,000 of them. We have, uh, to compare, we have about 150,000 words in our own personal English vocabulary in a language that boasts about a million words. So can you imagine one word has to mean lots of different things, which means that the language of God is by nature poetry. A few years ago, the Israeli minister of health had to come up with a new word for fast food restaurants because they started popping up in Israel. They don't eat that kind of food. They eat better than we do uh, over there even today, but, but McDonald's and Wendy's and KFC and all that started uh, popping up, and they didn't even have a word in their language uh, for, for a fast food restaurant, and finally he came up with a word that means literally cheap gluttony. <laughs> So, so they, they don't have uh, the words that we have uh, to use. So that means that to know means at least three things, more than that, but at least three. It means this. It can mean intimate love. It means showing mercy and acting justly. You see, there's a difference between believing in God and knowing God in this way. Knowing God makes you different. The Hebrews, and by extension, us, people of faith, we are asked to know God, to be so intimate with God that we're changed by that. And so Exodus chapter 7 promises that when the Egyptians see everything that God does to them and, and, and with them as he delivers his people out of slavery, they'll know him too. I've got a good example of knowing in the, in the book of Jeremiah. They call Jeremiah the weeping prophet because he cried so much over the lost potential of Jerusalem and, and God's people. They, they could have been so much better than they were. And so, so Jeremiah spent a long career uh, uh, prophesying and crying and getting beat up. And towards the very end of his life, they threw him in a hole and left him for dead. And it's fascinating uh, that, uh, that Jesus would, in so, in so much of the gospels, would reenact the lives and the acts of the prophets so much that people would say, a great prophet has risen among us, which doesn't mean that they didn't understand who Jesus was or Jesus got a downgrade, but rather Jesus was fulfilling or reenacting what prophets uh, had done long time before. Uh, what the prophets would do is they would speak truth. They would speak God's truth to them. And so in Luke chapter 19, Jesus stands outside of the city of Jerusalem and he cries for them. He weeps. So Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, has this to say in Jeremiah 22, verses 15 and 16. Speaks this to the king. Are you a king because you compete in cedar? What he's saying here is just because you're highly intelligent and just because you're efficient and just because you're rich doesn't make it right. You can see that theme again. Are you a king because you compete in cedar? 
Did your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, says the Lord? God wants his people to be different. God wants St. Luke's to be different. If we're, if we're a business person, God wants us to be a Christian business person. If we're a physician, God wants us to be a Christian physician. If we're a, a, a homemaker or a parent, God wants us to be Christian parents. If we're children, God wants us to be Christian children. God wants us to uh, consider the cause of the poor and needy. God wants us to have uh, emotional intelligence. Remember, it's not important to be successful, but rather to be kind. And the Egyptians, when they see these signs and wonder, will know in this way. That's what it means. Now, look, that's, that's the first lesson. Actually, there's, there's a couple more lessons in here, and one of these is found in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 7, and I'll just say it to you. I won't go back to the slide, but it's this. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is another lesson. You know, um, this happens all the time in the book of Exodus is Pharaoh's heart gets hardened. But what's curious about this is that sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart and sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And if you were to ask Bible people, people living at that time, which one of these is true? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let the slaves go? Or did Pharaoh harden his own heart so that he wouldn't let the slaves go? And an ancient Hebrew would say, yes. Now, what you see here, and in order to understand Scripture, you've you got to think like the people that wrote it. But what you see here is a logic that's different than our Western form of linear logic. We Western people love to add up. We love the stuff to add up. We love to line it up just right. So if A equals B and A equals C, then B equals C. I guess I said that right. I was terrible at algebra. Uh, but you know what I mean? It just, it just kind of goes in a smooth fashion and everything. All the dots are, uh, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Uh, the Hebrews thought, in block logic, in blocks of ideas. So here it goes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Block one, block two. In the middle, in the gap, is God. Both can be true. Both are true. Which one is which? Which one is, is first? Who knows? In the middle is the mystery of God. The old rabbis would teach that the very first word of the Bible is Bereshit, which is in the beginning, Bereshit. And it begins with the letter Bet, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph is the first letter, so it begins with Bet, which would reveal to them that there is a limit to human knowledge. There's only so much uh, that we that we mortals can understand. There's a realm of knowledge that only belongs to God, and that's in the gap. Heck, Jesus is block logic. If you think about it, you, you, have to, you have to think of two ideas when you think of Jesus all at once. And we say this in our creeds, uh, to think too much of the man Jesus, then we think less, too less about God. If we think too much of the God Jesus, then we think too little of our own human responsibility. You see, it's block logic. Which is it? Is, is Jesus a man or Jesus God? And the answer is yes. St. Paul wrote a great a great piece of work, a letter to, to the church in Rome uh, promising that he would uh, go there and use them as a base of operations for new missionary activity. He actually went to Rome to die, but he did write them this great letter that was the fruit of many years of travels to cities in the Roman Empire and, and thinking ethically and reflecting on the ethic of Jesus and writing as a very, very Jewish person and a Jewish thinker. He said this in his letter to the Romans. 
Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That sounds like a lot of churchy talk, but that's block logic. Are God's laws important? Yes, it's important that we follow them. Are we free? Yes. You see, both ideas are held in tension. Are we saved by grace? Yes, but is it important that we follow the Ten Commandments? Yes. Are we free to do anything that we want to do? No, but are we free? Yes. God is in the gap. God's in the mystery. God's in the life that we live. So I'm, I'm going to go back to where we began, which is say this. We can be successful. We can be brutally efficient, but that's not what God's asking from us. We can have intelligence, but God wants emotional intelligence. God wants our heart. God wants our empathy. God wants our feelings. God wants us to be his hands and feet in this world. God wants us to be as different as Abraham was different when he walked out under a night sky. Now, there's one more thing I'll say about this lesson, one more, one more lesson here, if you will. God promises that he would save them with signs and with wonders. And as we move into Exodus, we're gonna see lots of familiar uh, stories because we all know the movie. The Nile will turn to blood. There'll be a hail and bugs and darkness and eventually the death of the firstborn. What I want you to understand is that the Egyptians lived in a world of magic. And I want you to notice that God only encounters us where we are. That sort of Egyptian magic doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. God doesn't need to do that. He doesn't do that for the Hebrews in the later books like, like uh, 1 and 2 Kings or in the words of the prophets or even in the Gospels themselves. No, that, that, that swirling, blood-curdling world of magic was the way that they lived, the way that they saw the world, the way that they saw their gods. And so, so the God of the Hebrews uh, determined once and for all that he alone is God. He alone is the creator. He alone is the savior. Uh, and, he, and he will save them in that way. A good example that I like to use for this is, is an example of Jesus in the gospels. Uh, living in the Galilee in the first century uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, living next to their Canaanite neighbors, the Hebrews had picked up this idea of demonic possession. They lived in a world where they believed that demonic spirits uh, were absolutely the root cause of illness and mental disability and, and any, other, any other problem. You can look at some of the demonic uh, uh, ideas or the demonic scriptures, if you will, and you can see things that look like epilepsy or, or schizophrenia. Uh, and this is not to say that evil's not real, and I'll, I'll make my point in just a second, but this is to say that God meets us in our own understanding and meets us where we are. And so Jesus is an exorcism in the Galilee, an exorcist rather in the Galilee, because that's the, that's the world that they live with them. Now let's fast forward to today. Um, if I were to uh, claim to be an exorcist, or if I, if I were to exorcise a demon, you know, out on, out on Church Street in the middle of Crestline, well, you couldn't, get, you couldn't get enough cars in the parking lot of St. Luke's. People would turn out here uh, in droves because they'd want to see the show. It'd be a show, right? Instead, what we have here is the devil wants to kill us slow and kill us quiet and give us despair and bring us down and keep us separated and keep us sad during the quarantine. And so what we need now is a God who meets us where we are in this moment. We don't need a show, we don't need magic. We're not living in a world of magic. What we're living in is a world where we need hope and we need connection and we need, we need signs. We need for, uh, for there to be a, a bird in the morning, 
uh, to give us hope or a sunrise. We need for good people uh, to stay in each other's paths so that no one gets left behind. We, make we need to make sure that our little ones are safe. Uh, in this, these last few months that we've been together, we've learned that God has come to us uh, in our dreams and in our relationships and in the way that we are. So when we begin to read the stories of magic in the world of Egypt, let's remember that God is in our story in our life, in our routine, in our own existence, in our way. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you saved them. Save us. Gracious and loving God, you guided them, guide us. Gracious and loving God, you healed them, heal us. May the stories that we learn then be the stories that we experience now. And may we continue in faith so that we may know you Amen. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week.